0: Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere so you too can have No Vacancies. No Vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Do you remember episode 68, where I got to interview Kenny Bedwell, the CEO at S-Tier Insights? Well, since this episode dropped, I have heard multiple success stories from No Vacancy listeners who have been able to find their next property thanks to Kenny and his team at S-Tier Insights. If you've been wondering if the property or market you are looking at will be a good investment, or if you have no idea what market or property to start looking at, please take advantage of the free call that S-Tier Insights is offering No Vacancy listeners. You have nothing to lose. With their 100% success rate, I am confident that you'll be in good hands working with STR Insights. Whether you're looking for cash flow, cash on cash return, or long-term appreciation, STR Insights will first help you define your goals and then identify the market and property that is right for you. The team is made up of S-Tier investors and operators themselves, so they know exactly what to look for in terms of a good market and property, and will make sure that you can legally operate in the areas they point you to. If you're ready to join the dozens of No Vacancy listeners who have already started working with STR Insights to find their next property, just click the link in my show notes to schedule your free call and get you one step closer to finding that perfect deal. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I am delighted to have on the one and only Avery Carl from The Short-Term Shop. You may also be a listener of her podcast, The Short-Term Show, which I was so grateful to be a guest on at one point. Avery, I'm so happy to return the favor and have you on here today. For anybody who doesn't know you, can you
1: please introduce yourself and tell us your story? Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me, Natalie. So my name's Avery Carl. I'm a real estate (laughs) investor. I own a lot of different types of real estate. I'm definitely not somebody who's going to say short-term rentals are the right and only thing to own. For me, I actually started in long-term rental and I bought my first short-term rental in 2015 as a way, because I really only had like one down payment for one single family home left. And I bought a short-term because I wanted to make more money faster so I could go buy more short-terms and then go buy more long So, Oh, um, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, so yeah. It was just supposed to be like a sh- short-term
1: strategy <laughs> yeah. to get you into
0: more long-terms?
1: No pun intended. Yeah, yeah. So we, we had a long-term, we wanted to get into multifamily, which we have, you know, since and we said, well, how can we, I mean, we really didn't even know it was called real estate investing when we bought that first long-term, but what we found, we just bought it. Cause we were like, you know, what? we have some money. We went to a financial advisor at like an Edward Jones that was in my <laughs> building that my, that my job was at at the time. And Cause we had, you know, a little money saved up like 25 grand, nothing fancy. And we thought, well, let's go to a financial advisor and see what we're supposed to do with this. And we're going to be adults about this and Here we go. And they basically told us, like, she was very polite about it, but she said basically that we didn't have enough money for her to bother with. And we were like, oh, Oh, cool. Great (laughs) to know. (laughs) So we said, well, maybe if we buy, like, a house, then we can rent it out and the renters will pay the mortgage. It's not anything coming out of our pocket. I was like big into Dave Ramsey at the time. Yeah. And then when our future kids who are now current kids need to go to college one day, we can just sell it and the appreciation will pay for the kids college, which is a really stupid reason it don't do that. Don't invest based on potential appreciation because that can change in an instant. But we did buy something and we had it. the the mortgage was $645 a month. And we were able to rent it for $15.50 a month. So almost $1,000, which coincidentally, my dream job, music business, marketing job was about what I was taking home a month after all of the deductions and everything on on my paycheck. So we're like, wait a minute, this one house just doubled my income. We need to do more of this. So then we started listening to podcasts and reading books and actually educating ourselves on real estate investing. And we knew we wanted to make a business of it. But again, we just had a little money left. And we knew we didn't want to do a short term in Nashville, where he lived at the time, because it's just too crazy with the regulations changing all the time. So we bought in the Smokies, which was, you know, it was before courses, before gurus, before everybody making little Instagrams with little, you know, blue or yellow subtitles at the bottom. We just kind of had to figure (laughs) it out. So we started then and now... And that was in 2015. So what is it, 2023, eight years later, we've got 250 doors, no partners, eight of them are short-terms. The rest are single family, long-terms, and multifamily. Then started the short-term shop somewhere along the way on our second short-term rental because there just weren't really any agents in the space who could even answer our basic questions about it. And started with just me and the Smokies, and now we've got 60 agents in 20 markets and helping other people invest in short-term rentals also. Okay. I have several <laughs> questions. So first of all,
0: that one, that very first property that made as much as your salaried job, that was a long-term rental where you were a making long term money. Yeah. Uh, a long term, which is crazy. Okay. Do you think that those numbers were those just 2015 numbers or could
1: that still be done today with long-term? So you would have to find a deal the way that that works for us. So at the back then we went to like a, a one or two Meetings of the Nashville Real Estate Investors Association, so REA meetings, and we felt like such kids in there because all these people were like, "Yeah, I'm doing all this direct mail and blah blah blah. I'm doing burrs and I'm doing rehabs and I have a," you know, it just seemed like all these people had so much money that we didn't have, and we're like, "Man, we don't have money to be doing direct mail and like knocking on people's doors and what is all this?" And the deal that we got was right on the MLS. And we knew we had a very specific budget and we just watched and watched and paid good attention. And we got it for significantly under market because of really a mistake in the inexperience of the listing agent, which we were mm-hmm. inexperienced too. So we didn't know anything, but she was the daughter of the sellers and she'd just gotten her real estate license and she posed she didn't do a good job of running comps because the comps were like in the 150 range and she listed for 120-ish and she didn't have any photos on the MLS. And we happened to be brunching at a bar near that listing when it hit the market. And so we drove by and we said, man, this is really cute. We were expecting it to need a bunch of work. And it was turnkey, really, really cute. And it was, and we went ahead and made an offer right then when there were no pictures online because we knew other people would buy it and, and want to see it. So we just went ahead and did it. And so it was a little bit of luck, but also just us taking the opportunities where they came and not thinking, oh, well, you know, nothing makes sense because we were told Mm -hmm. then you can't long-term rent in Nashville anymore. You had to buy in like 2010 for that to work. Mm -hmm. And everybody was saying it didn't work kind of how people are saying with short-term now. And then we found Mm -hmm. something that worked amazing. So it's really just finding that right deal and being vigilant about that.
0: I definitely do think there's something to be said for like, lack of experience, I think is actually weirdly helpful in the beginning. <laughs> like when you note know too much, those are the people that I see. That's, that's myself right now. We have not purchased property since April, 2021. And I feel like I'm just like in this analysis paralysis mode because I almost like know too much at this point when I bought that one, I had no clue what I was doing. So yeah, it's interesting to see how that like paid off for you, even in a room full of all these seasoned investors doing the direct mail, doing the door knocking and all of that. Can we like, can you give us a Cliff's CliffsNotes version of how you went from that one long-term rental to now eight years later, 250 doors with no partners? How is that possible? Okay.
1: So first of all, yes, I quit my corporate job, but no, I did not quit my job. So my corporate job, I was making 35 grand a year. And then in my real estate career, obviously you can figure out how much, you know, one $300,000 investment property what the commission is. So I what I did was I got a job where which is you know what I do now where my income was determined by how much effort I put in. So I put in a whole lot of effort. <laughs> and at my old job, you know, I could put in all the effort in the world but it's still, you know, what you make is what you make until you right. get a raise. So I think a lot of people make the mistake of getting one or two and saying, "Oh man, you know, these are making or like maybe three or four. And these are making the same amount as my salary. I'm just going to quit. But instead of there's a, well, there's a few things we've done instead of quitting the jobs and saying "We're, we're real estate investors. Now we're living off of this. We both kept our jobs well into the real estate investing career. We, and we stuck with the same fundamentals of saving and budgeting throughout. So we had to budget really, really hard when we started and we never stopped budgeting throughout the whole thing. So we didn't say, oh, you know what? We've got these things making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now we can chill. We never chilled on the budgeting and we never spent any money that we made on real estate on anything other than buying more real estate. So the the all of that in a nutshell to say like don't try to live off your rental income if you're still in that scaling mode. Okay, you always just That's be reinvesting really nice. that. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So, do you feel like your growth up to 250 doors, like? Uh- I just know from my experience with co-hosting, at least like I've, I always tell people that in this industry, growth is very exponential. Like I went from managing one listing to two to four to eight. Like that's literally how it grew. Do you feel like it was similar in a purchasing phase? Was it exponential like that? Or like, what, what did the growth look like?
1: So it went one long-term rental, then five short-term rentals. And then we started getting back into the long-terms. So the short-terms, Came quicker than I ever would have expected. It was kind of exponential like that. So the five short terms were over the course of about a year and a half. And it was partially because the timing of the market. So back then properties were a lot cheaper. So a 15, like one of our properties is a studio. It was $125,000. And to save up 15% of 25,000, I mean, 125,000 wasn't as difficult on the same property today. You know, it's probably that same property is probably 300. So, but there's still markets where you can find those prices. You just have to dig a little deeper. So it was definitely exponential. Once we did, got to those five short terms and once, and Especially too, because short terms the cash flow is so much heavier. Once you get one, and then you get two, you've got you're you're now compounding all the saving and budgeting that you've been doing with extra money coming in through the short terms that you can mm-hmm. then it, that saving of the down payment every single property you get happens a lot faster. So, mm-hmm. um, and then with the scaling of the long terms. You have to remember one uh, one of our long term doors. Or you don't have to remember because you don't know. I will tell you one of our long term doors is about an average of a hundred thousand dollar purchase price. Where nowadays, in the, you know the past three or four short terms that we bought, the average purchase price was about six hundred. So you can buy several long terms for the price of one short term. So it's a lot easier to get that door number up when you're mm-hmm. buying those properties like that.
0: So when you went through that phase of buying the 5 short term, the 5 STRs because you wanted that to fund your future long term rentals, was there a moment where you were like, hey, this is way more profitable than we thought, like maybe we want to stick with this strategy. I know now your portfolio looks very mixed, but wh- what was like the decision making in there of like what which property was going to be a short term rental, which was going to be a long term rental? Like walk us through that thought process of how that came to be.
1: Okay. So we always knew we wanted to get more long-terms just because at the end of the day, it is quote less work. I mean, it's not, we can get into that in a minute. So we always knew we wanted to have a diverse portfolio. And with the short terms, we never really have... It's, we don't ever really have to choose, okay, this is going to be a long-term and this is going to be a short-term because we buy different types of properties for each. So for short-terms, we stick to vacation markets, regional drivable vacation markets. So we're in the Smokies, Destin, Florida, 30A, Florida, and Cape Sandblast, Florida. But then for our long-terms, we stick to more like C-class Properties in medium-sized cities, so like we did a lot of investing in Chattanooga, places like that, and typically, and it takes a lot more time for those to make money. So, with a short term, and we, we're still buying short terms. Like if a good deal came up in any of the asset classes we buy in, I, I would take that now. But some of the the functionality is different. So in a short term. You kind of have the flexibility of if something's not working, you can go ahead and, oh, well, you know what? The kitchen needs to be redone. Let's go ahead and do that anyway. Or you, you can start kind of depending on the deal and where you make mo- and where you buy, you can kind of start making money pretty quickly and you can tweak in real time. Whereas in a multifamily, what we buy, typically will be properties that need work that are at lower than market rents because they haven't rehabbed them in a while so they still have those like hideous like white cabinets with the weird mm-hmm. blonde pulls from like 1990 and like <laughs> na- nasty carpet a lot of them are like yellow cigarette stain on the insides and yep. what we do yeah <laughs> and so they're lower than market rent and so what okay. we do is as those renters cycle out and move out we'll upgrade them and then also that raises the rent but it can take years to get to that point to where everything's making a lot of money, whereas, and once you get there, it's great. And it's with a property manager all about property managers for long terms, even though we still self-manage our short terms. And it's not passive. nothing's passive. like we we were on vacation for spring break this year, and our long-term property manager told us, you know we just poured new a new parking pad, and somebody wrote the f word in it. <laughs> so oh my God. so yeah. still not passive. But once you get it there, it's like, Somebody else is placing the tenant, somebody else is doing all this stuff. And and then it's there, but it takes years to get there. And in, law, in in multifamily, the income determines the value of the property. So we buy it down here, rehab it to get the rents here. And then now that the value is, is much higher. So it's an entirely different strategy. Okay. Uh, Where short terms is a little more, I don't want to say instant gratification because nothing is, but if you tweak something now, your bookings will show that, you know, next month or the month after, yeah. whereas in multifamily, it takes years.
0: Okay. Okay. And, and sorry. So the biggest reason for why it takes years is because you have a tenant in there for like a year before you can go in and make those improvements.
1: Right. Right. Okay. Whereas okay. you no know, short-term it's empty. People are only yeah. there for three, or three days and then you've got to deal with leases when it comes to long-terms. Can
0: I ask why long-term. you're using a property manager for the long-term rentals? I would think managing a long-term is easier than a short-term rental. So if you're able to manage an STR, what's the reason for that?
1: Okay. So really, really good question. And it's totally different. So with a short-term, you're like, okay, you've got some good reviews. You want to book these days. Cool. Good to go. With long terms, you're having to do things like go show the property to a hundred different people that might want to rent it. You're having to do background checks on everybody. You're having to like deal with, you got to call and check on their, their jobs. Why can't I not think of the word employment, call and check (laughs) on their employment. And you have to do all of these things that it seems like would be easier. But when you get to having as many doors as I do, it actually is more of a daily thing than like if you owned one door yeah, you'd only have to do that once a year. But once you have a certain amount of scale, it's like just easier to have somebody else do it that you know they're getting 10% to do that. 10% of a long-term rental is a heck of a lot less than 25% of a short-term rental, which is the average property management split for short-term. So it's just easier for us to manage ourselves on the short terms with the help of a VA and then just okay. have, have those long-terms with property managers. And also too, Property managers in cities, like in big cities, can be a really great source of other of deals because they'll know, Mm -hmm. okay, this this we're managing this other ten unit they're thinking about selling, and they'll call us. So it's also kind of a relationship thing.
0: Ah, gotcha. I would have never even thought of that. Okay. Great tip. So with the property or with your portfolio now of 250 doors, have you ever used leverage or equity in one to purchase the next one? Or was this all just from your real estate business and and income?
1: All just from snowballing our income. On our second short term, we did use a HELOC on our primary home, but it was very small. It was only $20,000. And that's the only equity that we've ever pulled out. I'm I'm very careful. I'm I'm a very worst case scenario person. So anytime, anytime I make any decision, my brain has to go to every like dark corner first <laughs> before I'm like, okay, yes, we're gonna do this. So over-leveraging scares me a lot. Mm-hmm. And I have seen, unfortunately, my peers, some of them overleverage leverage themselves and get into situations that they can't get out of. And my goal is not to do that to myself. I don't want to have to start over again after we've, we've done all this. So we're super careful about leverage.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I just wanted to ask after you said that you were like, you came from Dave Ramsey's school of teaching. I was very <laughs> curious what the thought was with that. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So now out of the 250 in your portfolio, what is the split? How many are short-term, how many long-term, and do you have any midterms in
1: there as well? No midterms. Not that I wouldn't do a midterm. We just haven't done that. Okay. So we have eight short terms and we have about, I would say about a hundred doors worth of multifamily and the rest is single family and duplexes.
0: That's it. Only eight short terms. Mm -hmm. Wow. I don't know why I thought that that was going to be a way bigger chunk of your portfolio. Okay.
1: Okay. No, no. The short terms at eight do exactly what we need them to do. And so we don't, Like if I found a good deal right now, I'm more about like, maybe I want, maybe I want to do our first lifestyle asset where it will be a short-term rental, but it's going to be somewhere that I want it to be. I'm not as concerned with cash flow, and I would just, it will be ours, but we would definitely obviously rent it short-term to, you know, make a little money, but it would be more specifically as something we would want to stay in. So. You
0: talked about how at the beginning, every single penny you guys brought in from this business, you were not using any of this to live off of. It was just to finance growing the portfolio. Mm -hmm. Are you at the point now where you're actually enjoying the money for your lifestyle or are you
1: still in a scale phase? So we're not in scale phase in the sense that we're looking to buy a lot more. If again, if a good deal comes up, I'm taking it, but now we're looking more at well, how can we take all of this income from these rentals coming in and maybe start paying some things off? Because we're at Mm -hmm. the point where, okay, we could go buy some more and create more work, or we can pay some things off and create more income without creating more work.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's a great point too. Cause I've I have wondered about that a lot, and I'm nowhere close to the size of portfolio that you have, but I've wondered that a lot too is, you know, we talk a lot in this industry about like debt is a good thing, like always be leveraging debt to buy more. And I know for me, my eventual retirement plan does not involve me wanting to like continue making these monthly payments. You just never know what's going to happen. And if I could have everything paid off, like that to me would be true. Security and freedom. So, what was like the moment when you started to have that shift? Was it a certain number of doors or was it a certain number of like profit coming in where you were like, okay, now I think we're good on the scaling phase. That's not an intentional part of our strategy anymore. Now we can pivot that into paying some things off.
1: So, when we looked at our numbers like last tax season, we were like, okay, this is pretty good. We're, I think this is a number that we're happy with. But we still want to offset some of our other income with cost segs and things like that. And we started thinking, like, man, we, we had some property management problems last year with our long term. So, you know, we're not immune to that either. And he, Luke looked at me. He's like, man, it's just so much work trying to keep all these people doing their jobs right. <laughs> like, yeah. And he's like, I mean, how many more do we need to get before we, we decide, okay, we feel good about this? And then we just kind of looked at each other and we were like, why don't we pay something off? Because Mm -hmm. we're about, there's several that were like about 50% leveraged and it would double the income if we just paid it off. And we're like, why wouldn't we just do that instead of buying a bunch more doors that maybe we have to hire different property managers because property managers kind of stick to their areas. So if you're buying in like a suburb of an area you already buy, you're probably going to have to get a different manager. And long-term property managers, it's really difficult to, to find good ones. And So rather than adding more people to have to deal with into the mix, we can just pay some things off and, and move forward that way. So it wasn't like, both Luke and I both though, you have to understand that we're not, we work unhealthily hard and are just kind of those, you don't need to have as many doors as we have to be successful. We just are kind of weird like that and really competitive with ourselves. And, you know, I'm, I've always been, I grew up, you know, in athletics and and playing D1 soccer. And I just am that person who is so competitive for no other reason than just to be competitive that like, it's not fun to play a game of horse with me. I will ruin it for everybody. So (laughs) don't, (laughs) what we do is not necessarily what anybody needs to aspire to. Success is definitely, you can do it with a lot less doors than what, what we do. We just kind of go down the road and don't stop. (laughs) So
0: that leads me to a question. I didn't even have this on my mind, but now that you're, you bring this up, do you know like what, around what door number, what property did you feel like we've made it? Like we're good, we could stop now. I mean, I know you've got this competitive streak that wouldn't let you, but for the, for the normal person out there, who's like 250 doors, are you crazy, Avery? I can't do that. For the normal person out there, like what is the number that you felt like you achieved? You know, you made it.
1: To be honest with you, five.
0: Five. Okay. Yeah. But that was, so did that include the short terms? That was you just booked. the
1: short terms. Yeah.
0: Five short-term rentals. You felt like you had made it.
1: Yeah. Because I, you know, I had a master's degree. I'd worked really, really hard at my academic life. And then I saw what a long road it was going to be for there to be any kind of return on that investment income wise. And so I was going to be happy with, the income from those five properties and just, you know, selling one house a month forever, that would have been really, really comfortable compared to what I was used to making. Mm-hmm. And that was really, once I got that, I was like, man, this is cool. We can do this. We're, we're good. And then that was, that was, is with the competitive streak removed.
0: <laughs> okay. But, okay. So not retiring with just the five, you were still working as a realtor, but five mm-hmm. seemed to be like, we've got enough, like quote unquote, passive income from that to where I can just do one house a month as a realtor and we're good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we could have at that point, you know, just bought a house here and there. That was my point that I felt like, okay, this is very comfortable. And you know, this is something that we could keep, keep doing. And eventually it, it's to put it simply, that was the point where I felt like I wasn't constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop and everything to okay. just, you know, be the, cur- the rug to be ripped out from under us.
0: Okay. Okay. That's a great way of phrasing that. I have a, a few more questions for you about long-term rentals. I have no experience with LTR and I'm actually like, I have this deep-seated fear of doing a long-term rental, which is so funny because everybody I talked to who started as a long-term landlord is terrified of STR and they're mm-hmm. like, how do you have the turnover of people every few days? To me, that has always felt safe. Like if somebody throws a party, they're gone in three days. I block that guest. I never have to deal with them again. A long-term tenant just terrifies me. And the people I know, my parents have a few friends who manage like 40 long-term rentals. And it's like every year when somebody moves out, they pretty much sink their entire profits from that one property into bringing it back up because people trash the kitchen, trash the carpets, trash the walls, whatever it might be. What what has your experience been with that? I know that you have a property manager for your long terms, but are the profit margins like so slim that it is tough to stay ahead of it? Or are you guys comfortable with those?
1: So that's why with long-term, you really do have to do it at scale, whereas short terms, you can do it with three or four, but with long terms, you really do have to have a lot of them for it to make sense because you're right. If one person does move out and tear your shit up and you've only got one door, well, you are going to spend your entire profit on that. That being said, it doesn't happen as often as you would think. Like I have, we had one last week who moved out and I, they weren't mad or behind on their rent or anything. So I don't think they did it out of any kind of anger. I think they did it because they couldn't find a screwdriver, but rather than just remove their TVs from the wall with a screwdriver, they ripped them off and left holes in the wall. And I think it's because they couldn't find a screwdriver. So (laughs) there's that. But then we also had somebody else move out who had, she was a paralegal for like some, she'd been a paralegal for like 20 years and she lived there for 10 maybe. And when she moved out she had like done all these upgrades, like changed the floors and actually done it right. There's a lot of ways that could go wrong, but she lived there for so long. She was invested in it and she'd done like a fireplace facade upgrade and added a backsplash and put it. Did in she night- ever ask you guys no. like permission?
0: She just went and did it. No.
1: She just did it. So, that, you know, there's a thousand ways that could have gone wrong, but it's actually a lot nicer than when she moved in. So um, (laughs) most of the time you're not having to do a full rehab. You can count on having to paint and maybe fill in some holes, but the way ours are right now, we're still very much in that, not quite up to that profitable level phase on one or two buildings we are, but we pretty much know when somebody's moving out in a lot of our buildings that we're about to renovate all of that. So we haven't dealt with a lot of that yet because a lot of it we're planning on renovating anyway.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. And I think that goes back to what you talked about at the beginning that with long terms you have to plan that it's going to be several years before you're truly profitable. So if you have people who keep renewing their lease at, you know, market rent, then then that's it, right? You're planning that like we're just going to cover our mortgage for now. The strategy is more about equity and then it is going to be a few years before you're seeing profit.
1: Well, that's actually a really good question because you just don't let them if if they're really oh. They want okay. to renew, but it's one that is significantly below market, really needs to be updated. You just say, we're not going to renew the lease this time. Mm, you do have to okay. wait until their lease is done. You can't just go in there and clear everybody out. But when their lease is up, you just go ahead and, and say, we're not renewing. We are going to renew this unit.
0: Has that ever factored into your buy box? Like If you know that you're trying to buy something where maybe, let's say, buy a multifamily with 10 doors, And you know that 10 of the leases were just renewed, would that ever like deter you from buying something knowing it's gonna be like a full year before you can um, make these upgrades that you want? Like, do you ever consider the timing of these leases or are you just looking at the property itself?
1: That's a really, really good question because mostly we just look at the property itself, but sometimes property managers mistakenly think you would think that they would understand this, but you know, it's just kind of, it's the same as a lot of vendors in short-term don't really understand what an investor is looking for. I don't want to see asses in those seats. I would rather buy an empty apartment building. Okay, Um, A lot of them will, if there's any vacancy whatsoever, just go get it rented really fast, but to whoever just so they can say, oh, you know, look, we have 100% occupancy. Oh. And I don't like that because like you said, I would like to have a little more control when we're first buying something. I like to see some empty units, not because of any kind of problems with the market, but just because then I can do what I need to do to get it where it needs to be.
0: Yeah, I... Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of property managers or sellers would be like, I can't sell this thing without a tenant in here. Nobody's going to want to buy it. But for somebody like you, that's actually a deterrent in a way. You want to get in there and make the fixes you want and then bring it up to the rent that you're hoping to charge. Okay, good. Good thing to think about. I wanted to ask you too with 250 doors in your portfolio, have you personally walked all of these before putting an offer or? Do you have people out there now, like FaceTiming you, what it looks like or something? Do you just have good relationships with the sellers or property managers?
1: So we'll typically get a FaceTime first, but sometimes, especially, you know, two years ago when everything was so competitive, we would get a FaceTime first, make the offer. And then Luke, my husband, when it's the long-term stuff, will typically go and walk it just to, you know, make sure everything is what it needs to be. Cause especially with long-term, you don't know if it's across the street from like the dump or a lot of times people don't even think about videoing like the surrounding area. So, you know, I want to know what I like is if there's a brand new like Grant Cardone apartment complex next door, that's beautiful. I like that because that makes the area better, but the rent is too expensive oh for some people. So if I just make my units and my building look nice, they will come over to me and say, you know, I like this area, there's these nice buildings here, but I can't afford that, so I'm gonna come rent with you. So I like to know those kinds of things about the area. so Luke will typically go go do those during the inspection.
0: Okay, okay. yeah, I just wonder with that many like how you're feasibly like walking all of them and seeing what that looks like,
1: how get into each apartment, you, you might have to just see what one or two look like.
0: Sure. Okay. Okay. Right. Especially if you have people currently living there or something like that, you can't assess the whole thing. Okay. And then also another follow-up question on that too, is what is your, just for you personally, I know that this would change depending on someone's strategy, but for you guys, what are you comfortable with in terms of the amount of rehab required
1: I'm okay with you know any of the cosmetic stuff, which typically anything inside the units is gonna be cosmetic. The cool thing about multifamily is that if there's big repairs, so like we've had to do roofs sometimes, and one roof on these things can be like 70 grand. When you're getting these commercial loans from these local banks, they will let you finance the cost of that into your loan. So you don't have to say, oh crap, I don't have 70,000 extra just laying around to do this roof. They'll let you finance it into the loan. What I don't want to deal with is if I don't like window units, because I think that it, that is something that really like, even if it is an older, building. It dates everything. It's less attractive to renters and it's really expensive to get everything vented with individual thermostats. So we do have one that was built in 1900, but it has central AC. So that's not something I want to do. We actually, we dropped a deal recently because it was 35 units and all 35 HVAC units needed to be replaced, like central HVACs, which yeah. well were- you know 10,000 each 7,000 each so and the seller didn't want to to help with that so we we're like mm, probably not so that's a that's really kind of the biggest hang up but if it's something that so with the roof for example we're getting a good enough deal on the actual building that adding that 70,000 still wasn't going to quite get us to even what the market value of the property would have been so we were okay with doing that and then once you pay the roof off it that drops off of the mortgage payment so there's a lot oh, of okay cool yeah yeah there's a lot of creative things that can happen in, with commercial lending that you can't do in you know in our short-term rental world that helps
0: Yes, okay. That's leads me perfectly to kind of where I'd love to take this conversation next is with the financing. What down payments are you guys putting? What percent do you have to do? And what options are available with this commercial aspect rather than people financing for short terms?
1: So on multifamilies, you have to put 25% down. On really, family, put 20. But there's different things you can do. So in one market, we, where we buy single families where they're typically like 130000 So a local bank, we've shown them, it, it's a whole different thing. So we've had to show them what's called a, a personal financial statement. So they're not qualifying you based on your income or your debt or anything, but they want to see, okay, you own this many properties. This is your experience. This is your success level. This is what you plan to do next. This is what your business plan is. And then they will lend you money based off of that. So there's one bank that we got probably like ten loans with and once they saw that just you know typical commercial loans once they saw that they said well you know what we like what you're doing you're making all of the properties that you're buying so much nicer that we feel comfortable having the debt on those because you know you're not slum it so we're going to give you a million dollar guidance line of credit which they basically give you a million dollars to go buy of credit, not cash to go buy more. And then, you know, you're doing 20% down on that, but typically the interest rates will be better. They can just do cooler stuff. And there, I mean, there's a bunch of different things we could talk about potentially, but the more successful you are with a a lending partner, the better your terms will get to a point. I mean, the interest rates are what they are, but they'll be able to do other things creatively to keep lending you money because they want to make that interest rate.
0: Okay. So it's really all about relationships here. You guys use the same lender for everything and they know your track record at this point. Yeah. Okay. With the last few minutes we have, I would love to transition this conversation just to your other sort of business ventures. We know that you wrote a book with bigger pockets, short-term rental, long-term wealth. We know you've got the podcast. You started the short-term shop. Can you kind of tell us about some of your other creative endeavors right now? Oh, creative endeavors.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So right now what we're doing, we have, we've got the short-term show, which is our main podcast. And then we have Luke, my husband started his podcast. So mine is more investor success stories. His is called the short-term rental management show, and it's the more technical aspects of managing. And then what we've done really out of, we, out of trying to help our clients better. There's a number of questions that we've noticed in every single market that people want answered. You know, when people are new, they want to know, basically the same 10-ish things that they have questions about so we are about halfway through recording 10 a 10 episode podcast on each market so 10 episodes on each market cool. and those are coming out a few of them are out already and so look I think we have six markets out and we've got 12 to go so okay. that's taking up a lot of time but really just doing a deep dive on each market that you can invest in that we happen to to operate in so we're in 20 vacation market so we've got it's taken a lot of time it's 200 hours of recording so we're working on getting all those released and just just trucking right along uh, we're we're still catching our breaths breath honestly from 2021 beginning of 2022 when the, the, the sheer volume of people buying real estate was very, it was backbreaking. <laughs> and so things have slowed down to a more manageable pace so that now we can focus on really optimizing how we can best help our clients and not just like doing our best to keep up and keeping the phone answered. And I mean, we had to turn our phone off back then because there were just so many people calling wanting to buy real estate. A lot of people, to be honest, that really weren't looking at it as the business that it is. And so anyway, now looking at the holes that we found because of that volume, what, what systems broke then that we can take this time to fix and better optimize. So we're best serving our clients as things pick back up. So just kind of a, I don't want to say rebuilding because nothing broke, but like (laughs) optimizing. Restructuring. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then how did the book deal come to be? So that was just kind of lucky. Right place, right time. So Short-term rentals, it takes longer for a book to come out than I think a lot of people think. So the book deal was signed in 2019 and it came out in, or maybe not 2019, beginning of 2020, I had until December of 2020 to write it. It came out in November of 2021. And I guess I was sort of like an early adopter, I guess. I hate to even call myself that because that sounds like a douchebag. But, you know, we bought our first one in 2015. We had five by the end of 2017. And the as short-term rentals kind of started to establish themselves, I uh, went on Bigger Pockets podcast. It got a great response. And they did not have a book on that specific topic yet. They had them on a bunch of other ones. So they were like, hey, do you want to write this? (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool, let's do this. (laughs) So I don't have any, unfortunately, like strategy or anything to share with people about about that other than just, you know, keep, keep it on trucking. And, you know, even if you're doing something a little bit different than what other people, because back then I spoke at the first Bigger Pockets conference in 2019, and they had us all feel like in this room that nobody wanted to go to.
0: Or, like, <laughs> a random short-term yeah, operating yeah. room.
1: <laughs> and, or like, you know, that the room for like the, the Bitcoin room that was <laughs> real. And, but now it's like, you know, main stage. So it's, it's definitely been interesting to kind of watch Short-term rentals really establish themselves as as a true asset class and not just like some like scammy thing that people think that college kids rent each other's couches to each other and stuff. <laughs> okay, this is the very last question I have
0: for you, but I know that you're a mom of two kids, I believe. What does your like vision for this business look like with them? Like, is this something you would love for them to take over one day? Do you? I'm always curious, like at your level do you do your kids know that you guys are wealthy like i am very very like protective of what i want my kids to know they're very young right now and i don't ever want them to like be spoiled or grow up to be like little rich brats or anything like that so what has that like looked like for you and luke how are you guys raising your kids in
1: you know within all of this so I of course would love for them to want to work with us one day but I think it's it's really important for them to find their own way and not be I don't want to steer them towards oh you got to work in the family business if you know one of them really wants to do I don't know there's going to be some job that we will be like the boomers of the, of their generation <laughs> and think it's stupid and and they'll be making money but I just really want to instill in them that as long as they they can do whatever they want, even if other people think it's stupid, as long as they're working their absolute hardest on it. And that's the thing that is the most important that not letting the time pass and not saying like, oh, I'm a musician, I'm not going to work. Cause like I was a musician for a while and, but I worked my ass off bartending, but I, there were a lot of them, a lot of my peers that didn't. So I think really just instilling in them the importance, the importance of working hard and not so much like what I want them to do, but picking the thing that they want to do and working their ass off at it. It's a great
0: answer. Thank you so much, Avery. I really enjoyed talking to you. Congrats on all your guys' success. And we might have to have you on in the future as you start paying some of those off. Or if your strategy changes at all, I'd love to have like a catch up of how things change with the markets and whatnot. But thank you for being so open with us today. And then how can people connect with you?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And you can connect with me. You could follow us on Instagram. It's at The Short Term Shop, or you can join our Facebook group. It's the same title as my book, Short Term Rental, Long Term Wealth. And then, of course, the website, theshorttermshop.com.
0: Thank you so much, Avery. Talk soon. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? We have a host who wrote this in a Facebook group. I am obviously upset, but more flabbergasted. My recent four adult guest stay, my porch blank camera shows nine adults and two children, booked with multiple five-star reviews. After dealing with Sharpie on my walls and table, peeling tape and band-aids off the wall, broken knob on kitchen cabinet, attempting to clean blue goo out of my carpet to no avail any tips, I kept smelling something foul in my laundry room. I keep tubs for my clean sheets in there for each size. I open one to find poop-covered sheets. Then I notice smears everywhere in my laundry room, on the inside and outside of tubs, on the washer, on the wall, on the floor. I am an easygoing person and understand shit happens, pun intended, but man, I was and still am so upset and disgusted. Why wouldn't you just throw them away? Why hide them when you know they'll be found? I filed a claim and received the compensation I asked for. Now I am at a standstill on how to leave a review. I do not want to come off harsh, but I don't want other hosts to get fooled by this five-star guest like I did. I am still too frustrated to articulate my words for the review and would appreciate a calm mind to help. The guest had already left a review before I even filed a claim and asked for compensation. I am not worried about their review of my home." This host also attached pictures of what these poop-smeared sheets in the laundry room looked like and the tubs that they were in. It is disgusting. I will never get that image out of my head. It made me so nauseous. Now, obviously, we are all in agreement here that these guests are without a doubt Airbnb holes. What the hell is the matter with these people Nine adults and two children is who they saw come in on the ring camera. You're telling me that within nine adults, like even if we want to give the benefit of the doubt that it was kids that did this, I I don't believe that. But even if we want to say it was the kids that did this, out of nine adults, none of them could come check on the kids and see what had happened. I think that these were just absolute assholes, trash human beings with no regard for other people and the fact that somebody else is going to have to clean this after them. Again, like, if they had an accident, why not just throw it out? I, I don't understand. There will be no explanation for this, except some people just want to watch the world burn. And it's disgusting that these people would treat a home like this that welcomed them with no issues. Now, here is where I have to come down on the host a little bit. This whole part where they say, now I'm at a standstill on how to leave a review. I do not want to come off harsh. I'm about to be very explicit with my language, so if you have kids listening, this would be the time to turn this off. But what the fuck do you mean you don't want to be harsh with somebody who crapped all over your motherfucking sheets and shoved it in a bin, shoved it in a bin, and then smeared feces on your laundry room walls? What the fuck do you mean you don't want to be harsh with them? Girl, stand up for yourself. Have some freaking self-respect. I, like, I... I... (sighs) I... I'm trying to be so empathetic with you because this is just heartbreaking what happened and I cannot imagine being the host in your shoes and walking into this scene and feeling so disrespected and violated like this. But I also, ca- I cannot rationalize in my head. These people came into my home, shot all over my fucking laundry room and smeared it on the walls, but I don't want to come off harsh. Girl, I cannot defend you. I cannot defend you if you won't defend yourself. Have have some self-respect, have some dignity for yourself. How can you stand for this? And what's shocking to me with this is that you already said you filed the claim. For most hosts, that's the hardest part. Because the review we know is double blind until the guests will not see your review until they've also posted theirs or until after 14 days. So in my opinion, leaving the review is the easy part filing a claim is the part that makes people nervous because then your guests get tipped off to the fact that you filed a claim they may have had to pay money in this case you say that you did receive the compensation so most likely your guests were charged that should have been the hard part that should have been the nerve-wracking part i mean you you did the right thing for sure you definitely did the right thing but that should be the part that that makes you a little bit nervous because now they know that you're on to them and you are going to leave a bad review the actual leaving the review part that should be the easy part I don't, I don't, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. When you say, I don't want to come off harsh. Is there a non-harsh way to come off when someone shit in your fucking laundry room and smeared it on the walls? Let's read the comments, okay? This one girl commented, I may be the oddball out here, but I wouldn't sugarcoat anything on the review. I wouldn't use words like hygiene or lack of hygiene. Put on your review that someone literally shit all over your damn house and ruined the sheets and hid them in a tub. Hold them accountable. The least that could have been done was, hey, my child had an accident. Are you sure they didn't bring Amber Heard with them? Yes, yes. Like, thank you to this commenter. I. What are we talking about here? Why are we even entertaining this idea of sugarcoating? How do I write this in a professional way? Like, there is no room for professionalism when someone shot all over your damn house and smeared it on the walls. Professionalism left. Professionalism left the window a long time ago, honey. Professionalism is gone. Hold them the fuck accountable. This is so despicable. Are you sure Amber Heard wasn't in their group? Great, great, valid question. Okay, somebody else commented, is there a reason people are worried about leaving guests bad reviews? I regularly leave people one to four star reviews and explain why, but it seems like hosts on these Facebook pages are always reluctant. I would truthfully explain all the issues you countered and leave one star. Someone replied to that comment saying, I agree. I feel like as hosts, we get nitpicked down for every little teeny tiny thing. Unless it's the most spectacular place they've ever been to, it seems like nobody is handing out five stars anymore. Yet all of these hosts still give out five stars. I'm heartbroken for what this host went through. I mean, seriously, this is this is, such a traumatic situation. I'm not using the word trauma lightly here. Like I would not be surprised if this girl needs therapy after this. It is so violating to have to find that and be the one to clean it and just if it were me like I would have burning hot tears pouring down my face and I would just be so angry that being said you need to girlfriend you need to stand up for yourself and leave a completely honest review leave a completely honest review and explain what happened no sugar coating get straight to the point and leave a review that is worthy of these guests being kicked off the platform and never being able to find accommodation again that is what these people deserve they are disgusting nobody should ever be subjected to dealing with them again and if you wish that that courtesy had been extended to you and that somebody else had left an honest review in the past you need to step up and do that right now there is no such thing as being too harsh with people who shot in your fucking house and smeared it on the damn walls all right Johnny Depp took Amber Heard to court over this shit. These people, a, a bad review, a one-star review is the least they should be worried about. Honestly, you you have ground suppressed charges here. You really do. Do you guys know that scene from Incredibles where Edna Mode grabs Elastigirl and she's like, pull yourself together. Like, that's what I want to do with this host. Like, I want to give you like some tough love, but I, I just want to like pick you up and be like, girl, pull yourself together and write this damn review. Give them a one star and write exactly what happened end of discussion. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye!